This is a multi-part series that we're going to talk about. I'm going to tell you, it's a crazy story. So first, welcome to Oh My Lord, Chicago history you never learned in school. So I'm here with John Zinn. How are you doing today, John? Doing well. Thank you, friend. You're welcome. So today, we are going to talk about the Tylenol murders. What do you remember about the Tylenol murders? This is this where like bottles of Tylenol that you would buy in the store were getting poisoned and people were taking dying. Okay. And it was in the Chicagoland area, which we'll get into. Obviously, it was in the Chicagoland area or we wouldn't be talking about it. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, I remember it was... 1982 and i when i was writing about this i'm like oh that's why i've never taken a capsule pill ever again in my life halloween was canceled basically because everybody was just freaking out oh okay and it was in part because of wgn news every household had wgn news and they were broadcasting the story all the time. Yeah, because it was a major news for them. Yeah. So, in fact, yeah, we'll talk about, I have some statistics near the end. So I want to just put out this. I primarily used a great multi-article piece from the Chicago Tribune titled creatively, The Tylenol Murders. It was really amazing investigative journalism they did on the 40th anniversary and as well as an article from the Chicago Magazine. And I'll put other links in my sources. I watched some documentaries on BuzzFeed, but these were the two most comprehensive because they have a, it's a hometown story. I'll include everything in the show notes. In the final days of September, 1982, over the course of 24 hours, seven people in the Chicagoland area died suddenly, shortly after taking Tylenol extra strength capsules. And I got to tell you, so when I started researching this, I thought it was going to be a simple story about a proper public panic, safety caps, and the subtle ways this influences in 2023, the Halloween fentanyl scares. But I found a tale with more plot twists than a Tolstoy novel. People dying of the Tylenol is the least crazy part of the story. Wow. Yes. And part of what I think, too, is what's interesting about it is there was probably a point where the national attention waned because it does. Mm -hmm. It didn't stay in their awareness. But, yeah, it gets really crazy. We're going to start with the murder at at 615 a.m. A tween named Mary Kellerman treated her headache. And she was pronounced dead at 9.56 a.m. About an hour after Mary took her tablet, Adam Janus took an extra strength Tylenol capsule. And he died of what they thought was a stroke. He was 25 years old. Around 3 o'clock, Mary Lynn Reiner bought her bottle of death. Shortly thereafter, she was in a coma. She was declared dead at 9.05 the following morning. So fast. Yeah. Oh, so later that afternoon, Adam Janice is pronounced dead. The family goes back to his house 
to plan a funeral and to grieve him. Now, his brother Stanley had back issues, and Stanley's wife, Teresa, at the time had a headache. So they took the Tylenol that was out, and oh, Stanley, no. yes. Oh, no. So Stanley fell to the floor. And as the paramedics worked on her husband, Teresa collapsed. Oh, God. Yeah. And Adam's widow, she saw that earlier in the day. So she just gets her kids out of the house. Like she just rushes out of the house with the kids. The lieutenant fire chief, I believe this is in Arlington Heights, is quoted telling the Chicago Tribune saying, so now I've got six paramedics working on two people and I'm looking at what's going on. I said, guys, this isn't heart attacks. There's something wrong. Well, that I hate to call a murder a plot point, but we'll talk about this later. So shortly thereafter, Mary McFarland, who worked for the phone company, told coworkers that she felt dizzy and then she buckled. The paramedics arrived within two minutes. And then later that evening, Paula Prince, who was a flight attendant, purchased and consumed capsules, dropping dead. Police had to go perform a wellness check on her on the evening of October 1st because she missed her shift. She literally missed her flight. And they found her corpse. Good God. Yeah. Now, she notably was the only victim who lived in the city. Her address, what? It was all northern burbs? It was all suburbs, yeah. Her address was 1540 North LaSalle. Do you know where that is? Is it it by Second City? It's by Second City. The apartment, it was the high rise next to my apartment on LaSalle. Okay, that's what it doesn't say, because you live by Second City. Yeah. Oh my God, wow, that's weird. It was so, even though it was so long ago and I lived there like 20 years after the event, just reading that, it gave me chills because guess where Paula bought her Tylenol? Oh, good Lord. At your local Walgreens store? The little Walgreens where you Yeah. That's on North Avenue, right? Yes. Yeah. The one right across from Second City. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. And it's weird. So I was in an Uber many years ago and we were going down north avenue and somehow as one does with their uber driver and it was an uber sheriff so a random stranger in their uber somehow the tylenol murders came up and the uber driver was the one that told me that walgreens was where at least one of the bottles was purchased calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story if you haven't already heard me talk about june's journey you're in for a treat It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. 
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Holy. Yeah. It's weird because I've been in there so many times, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. It was next to Corcoran's. I probably used it as a grocery store way too much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I really want to stress the succession of the fatalities because it was spanning four cities and two counties. Mm. And shit be happening all at once now the multiple janus deaths stimulated people's spidey sense and concerned about a possible airborne contagion the arlington heights fire department quarantined the janus family and yeah they didn't know lieutenant chuck kramer called the city's public health official who was nurse Helen Jensen. She goes into the hospital and upon arrival, she questions the first responders and the family members. And then she goes back to the house, which may or may not have a contagion in it. And she inspects the house. And she told Chicago Magazine, I looked and I didn't see anything that could possibly be a contaminant. There was a shelf full of over-the-counter medications and some prescription drugs. I found a bottle of Tylenol and there were six capsules missing. And three people dead. In my mind, it had to be something to do with the Tylenol. And of course, there was no protective ceiling on this or any over-the-counter drugs. They just had cotton tucked in there. So we went back to Northwest Community Hospital. We took the bottle with us. By oh, okay. what? Because at that time, oh, at that time, there was, I was going to ask, there was no, like, foil over the top of the bottle there was no foil over the top of the bottle this is the reason we have the foil okay just the cotton got it okay yes so the first death was early in the morning by 10 p.m that night the nurse solved the mystery man murder she wrote yeah the tribune wrote this is of the nurse it has to be the tylenol she said her declaration was met with skepticism, she said. So she repeated it, this time stamping her foot and raising her voice. There's something in the Tylenol. Same response. Feeling frustrated and unheard, she went home, 
and poured herself a scotch on the rocks. She told her husband that lives were potentially still at risk and she couldn't get the right people to believe her. She cried herself to sleep. I am a woman and a nurse, she said. No one was going to listen to me. Yeah. Was this ever, was this ever, you'll maybe get to this, but was this ever a TV movie or anything? I don't think so. I don't remember one, but. There should have been one. Brilliant. Anybody. Yeah. So, and by the way, I'm giving this nurse her due. And I'm not going to detail how they concluded the contaminated capsules because there was a lot happening at once. One of the doctors sent somebody, I want to say, to probably Abbott Laboratories to have the blood work checked. And one of the one of the health people told the guy, smell the bottle and capsules. Cyanide famously smells like almonds. Mm. So they figured it all out. But she was really the first person to be like, and I've got to tell you, reading how it all went down, I reread the information more times than Ted Cruz tweets in a day and continue being confused. The bottom line is, as in any commendable propaganda, they cracked that aspect of the case in less than 24 hours, conserving countless lives. Yeah, for sure. And maybe we do need cops, but it all started with a nurse. Full disclosure, my mom was a nurse. And I also keenly think as horrible as it was for one family to lose three people, I tend to think that saved a lot of lives. Because there was a very clear connection there, right? (laughs) That it had to be something in that house. Yeah. Good on her for looking at everything in that house. Yeah. And then so the fire department had a quarantine in Arlington Heights. And one of the fire worker or firefighters called another suburb firefighter. And oh, you had a quarantine. And then they were talking and they realized they had really similar deaths. Okay. Yeah. It was just shooting the shit. And oh, yeah. We had the 10 year old dropped out on us today. In 1982, trends included the Commodore 64 broad power shoulders, and Michael Jackson's Thriller. Innovations included the Sony Compact Disc Player and Diet Coke. HIPAA, mass use of the internet, and fax machines did not exist. How did they apprise the public about the poisonous pills? At 3.06 a.m., a 24-hour news outlet called City News Bureau published a piece, but they omitted any mention of the uh, Tylenol until they could verify it because of journalism. Now, they were acutely aware, they were acutely aware that this is more urgent than warning people about, say, a global pandemic. The journalist toiled tirelessly. Prior to daybreak, they substantiated the connection to what they dubbed on the news as a headache remedy. The formal press conference took place at 10 a.m. the next morning. And according to Deputy Medical Examiner Donahue, the press conference was simply to tell people in the area that we had found cyanide in Tylenol and to warn them that there might 
to warn them that there might be a danger, that if they had any, then it was probably a good idea, at least for a while, not to take it. We weren't saying it should be recalled, but we thought that the community needed to be warned. Here's my thought. You just shouldn't take it for a little while. Is there a shelf life on cyanide? It's what? To be cautious, please pour it out. And that we saw. I actually stumbled upon the answer about a shelf life to cyanide, and we'll get into that later. But one of the reasons they think that it was done locally is that cyanide would destroy the packaging. Oh, of the packaging of the tunnel. I get that. Yeah. yeah. But couldn't have come from like a factory and shipped somewhere because the somehow the cyanide would erode the packaging. Yes. Interesting. And yeah, don't ask me anymore because I know you might be shocked, but science is not my strong point. I didn't know that the theater school with you. So, (laughs) well, during COVID, when Maddie was in like kindergarten, so this isn't the stakes weren't very high. And we all had a homeschooler with like her curriculum. And my parents, we're going to put you in charge of STEM. I'm like, what? Oh, no, you're not. No. Luckily, STEM for five-year-olds isn't really that difficult, but yeah. I'm sure some musical about science or scientists. Sure. Now I'm at the plenty. I know. I'm thinking. <laughs> so rightfully, expected terror just ensued. People got really scared. Stores instantaneously snatched the pills from their shelves. Public health departments dashed door to door, issuing leaflets, and the police cruised with bullhorns, ordering people to toss their Tylenol. <laughs> Which, again, just imagining the cops of Chicago, the CPD, with bullhorns being like, throw out your Tylenol. I guess at that point, everybody did read the papers, right? So if it was in the papers. Yeah. That would be probably how you got to most people. Not everyone, though. Not everyone, but most people, or you had the news. It's not. They had to wait. What if you didn't read the paper right away and then you had a headache? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is from the medical examiner CEO Dames. I spent the rest of the day on the phone. You answer, and it's people worried who had taken Tylenol. The simple answer is if you took it, and you're calling me, don't worry, but don't take any more. Yeah. If you're calling me, you are alive, in fact, ma'am. <laughs> it's just like such a Chicago thing. Like, if you're still alive, I think you're fine. <laughs> Thus far, all of the victims lived in the suburbs. And that, that was until they found Paula Prince's body. And the city, in Chicago fashion, ascended into accelerated action. Chicago did an interview with then-Mayor Jane Byrne in which she describes her evening and activities. That Friday, I had three nighttime engagements. One was a rather big retirement party for a police officer. That was at Navy Pier, followed by a very social type of evening at Symphony Center. I did a Lincoln reading there. And that was to be followed by a black tie dinner. These things were not similar. So I started out my evening and the only thing 
on my mind at that point was, what would I wear? When we walked out of the retirement party, the driver of the car came up and said, there is an urgent message for the mayor. Call the office. So I got in the car. We called the office. And they explained the preliminary thoughts on what could have been what was a disaster. They knew at that time that Prince had been out and came in and had a headache and took Tylenol and then died. And it was like, oh, my God, there's a million people out there. Fun fact. This is me. The 1980 census for Chicago was three million. 5,072 people, a little more than a million. I understand what she was saying, but she's the mayor of the city. She should be like, there's 3 million people out there. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm reading this. I'm like, wait, has Chicago grown that much? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you should know your population, ma'am. Yeah. It's worth noting she didn't get reelected. <laughs> right. Now. All right. So. Back to what Byrne said. What was on my mind was, how many others? We called the superintendent of police, the commissioner of the fire department, and the doctor in charge of the board of health. We had them meet me at Symphony Center in a back room. I thought, we've got to prepare. We ordered flyers, printed particularly in foreign languages. We planned everything to make sure that the public was notified. That was phase one. So I went down to my office. We were waiting and all these different sources to give us information. More and more was coming in, and there was no doubt that somebody had tainted the Tylenol. In her evening wear, the mayor of Chicago held a midnight nationwide press conference announcing Prince's death and pulling all Tylenol off the shelves. She gained national attention again the next morning when she declared a blanket ban of Tylenol. She says, It created quite a fur. I don't think I had done anything like that before. No shit! Like, you did. This is years later. This isn't like an in-the-moment. This Chicago Magazine called her up and asked her to be interviewed, and that's what she says. (laughs) It's asking, what? You had to yeah that is the thing that would have been the thing to do right it's estimated that nationwide over a hundred thousand articles were written about the tylenol murders and the er's were inundated by people who were paranoid oh i'm sure yeah and according to the fda there were over 200 copycats within a month. Oh, Jesus. I feel like I remember that, that too, the wave of copycats. Yeah, I don't remember that, but I mean, I'm probably sure that's why Halloween got canceled. There, There's things I'm reading, I was reading, and I'm like, I can't wait for John's reaction to this. We have people poisoned, cops on the boulevard with bullhorns, and a formal wearing mayor holding a midnight press conference. But things get weirder and perhaps darker. If this was a Dick Wolf show, we would argue it jumped the shark. If I find out that Bozo the Clown was involved from WGN, I'm going to be upset. 
No, but spoiler alert, the Unabomber makes an appearance later in the story. Okay. I literally was like, I wanted, I've been doing like a piece about Chicago Nazis in the 1970s. And I'm like, I'm just going to do the Tylenol murders. It's going to be simple. No. Okay. The evening of September 30th, Illinois Attorney General Tyrone Farner, he attended a Republican event with Senator Charles Percy and Governor never went to jail Thompson when he received a call. So due to this covering both Cook and DuPage counties, according to some, the poisonings fell under the watch of the attorney general. Side note, did you ever watch the John Oliver piece on state attorney general? No. It's an interesting piece, but I don't think he ever mentioned what's now called bioterrorism. So Tylenol high, that's what the press and some of the police eventually named him, amassed a multi-jurisdiction and agency task force numbering nearly 100 members of law enforcement. You had municipal cops, state troopers, county sheriffs, and the FBI. This was really not within the jurisdiction of the DOJ. but. Since it wasn't AIDS, Ronald Reagan deemed it important. Right. Yeah. From the Tribune, the the FBI put about three dozen agents on the case under the premise that the agency needed to determine whether Johnson & Johnson had violated federal law by failing to list potassium cyanide among the active ingredients in Tylenol. So that's their theory? (laughs) Cyanide had been in there, and they just haven't been listed. Here's what a Tribune goes on to say. Simply put, the Fed's entry into the investigation hinged on the admittedly preposterous notion that the manufacturer intentionally put... Yeah. They waited this long to do it. Hasn't Tylenol been around since 90 or something? So they're like, we'll just get a business money for 100 years, and then... So intentionally put poison in the pain reliever and then committed a misdemeanor crime by not including it on the label. That's the Fed's reasons. The agents, the Tribune goes on to say, the agents didn't bother to pretend that labeling rules were their true motivation for getting involved. Yeah, they didn't even pretend. It was received about as well as you think. You'll see how well it was received. So they had questions like, what was the motive? Was it a disgruntled employee, an angry customer, profit? And they created a central operations in a displays police bunker. And they'd meet at the beginning and end of each day. And the facility also served as a hub for the tip hotline. From the Tribune, the effort was Herculean, said Jeremy Margolos. Margolos, Margolos, whatever. Sorry, Jeremy, a former U.S. attorney who was assigned to the task force. We used every single technique available to us. And you had a lot of very experienced, very intelligent, very resourceful people thinking about this all the time, thinking about angles, thinking about ideas, testing them and implementing them wherever we possibly could. It's a hackneyed phrase but we left no stone unturned. In the first 
few weeks, they received over 6,000 tips. Mm. All of which were written on index cards. That's how you did it? Uh You wrote them on index cards and you dropped them off? No, they called the people transcribing them wrote them all in. Yeah. They have a big stack of index cards like my mom used to have her recipes on. Yes, exactly. But it's tips. Yeah. So the first thing they focused on was surveillance. Assuming that the assailant wanted to revel in the results, they eyeballed the victim's homes 24 hours a day. Additionally, they photographed all funeral attendees and set up cameras at the gravesite. Oh, see if yeah. So in 1982, E.T. hit the movie theaters. Also around this time, they had a newfangled computer program that allowed people to cross-reference information. What? Task Force took the names of the funeral guest books and license plate numbers, and they cross-referenced it and investigated it. So in the first year, they investigated 35,000 citizens and 15,000 companies. With You mean with connections to the people who came to the funeral? To funeral and license plates, yep. Okay. It's nice that they investigated the companies. They knew back then that corporations are people too. In 2023, we know we're being watched, but the sheer amount of surveillance they were doing, and it gets even weirder in the surveillance department, but the sheer amount of surveillance they were doing in 1982 is a lot. For reasons we'll explore later when we discuss J&J's response, the police determined that the bottles were altered at the location. So what they think was that someone bought the Tylenol, put the cyanide in, and then returned it to the shelf. Okay. Because the only surveillance they had at least at the Walgreens at the time, was when you wrote a check. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because Paula wrote a check. And there was a guy standing behind her. They investigated that guy. Not shockingly, in the year they introduced G.I. Joe and Miss Pac-Man, they didn't really follow chain of evidence protocols, let alone test DNA. Best summed up by a Chicago detective, I can tell you, this wasn't a CSI show. Yeah, no doubt, dude. They also employed traditional methods, including interviews. They did all the copying that cops do. (laughs) Yeah. Even three weeks after the murder, the FBI went to Bob Green, the journalist, to ask him to write a piece including Mary Kellerman's address as well as the location of her grave so they could surveil it. So we've got, have you ever watched, have you ever watched Minds? Yeah. They do all the things that they try in Criminal Minds, planting things. They also employed an emerging procedure called profiling. Oh, okay. I'm sure this will go well. It's a, it's a, so according to the Tribune, the Tylenol case marked one of the earliest uses of the approach. 
some investigators on the case, including a few still involved with it, considered the rendered profile too vague to be of any real use. Anyone who, this is me. Um, so anyone who's watched a Criminal Minds show can predict what it says. Treatment for mental health, violence towards the parents, animal cruelty, enjoying attention, reaching out to law enforcement. The only departure is instead of escalating, he would offer to assist in solving the case. And lastly, and I quote from the Tribune, he would gravitate towards someone with a blue suit and a red tie, the quintessential 1980s style power suit. It would likely be someone with gray hair. What with the power suit? Are you <laughs> kidding? Oh my God. That's like, he's like, he probably likes watching Dynasty because of the big shoulders and the dresses of Joan Collins and Linda Evans. It's like, oh. It's a very specific profile. Up until, yes, those, uh, they always say that all that first stuff about serial killers, right? They yeah. always say all that for cruelty to animals and all that. And then they want to help solve the case. But it's weird that they said nothing about this method because this method is like, it's a very passive, it's a very passive way of killing people. It's not right. violent attack or anything. I think they were so shocked about it. And they had one theory that they had was that it was targeted towards one person. This is a dumb, this is, I'm going to break down how dumb this theory is, that it was targeted towards one person. And then they just spread cyanide laced Tylenol bottles throughout the area to evade suspicion. But how are you going to guarantee that one person is going to go buy the Tylenol? Yeah. But it's sitting on a shelf with you know, other bottles of the same time. No. Yeah. <laughs> this little tidbit, the FBI's counterintelligence unit even reached out to their Soviet counterparts to see if they had any spy satellite images that could help. And that is according to former FBI agent Gray Steed. That's amazing. <laughs> It's better. The Soviets were willing to assist, but their satellites weren't trained on Chicago suburbs at the time. Imagine that. I'm less shocked that this happened, but I am shocked that they admitted it. And when I first wrote this, it was the China spy balloon and everybody was freaking out about the China spy balloon. Or there was most recently the leak from the Pentagon. And it's like, oh, we spy on other countries. In 1982, in the height of the Cold War, Russia had such sophisticated spy equipment that they could possibly have images that would crack a poisoning murder. And that, what? And that Arlington Heights was on their usual. They got to watch that racetrack. Oh, man. Yeah, I just in 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 1982, under the glorified governance of Ronald Reagan, the FBI resolutely reached out to Russia to see if, and I quote, had any spy satellite images that could help. Now, it's worth noting now that we're talking about you know 
spying on people. The original name for this podcast was Shit's Been Fucked Up Since Forever. So if you complain about being surveyed on now, just know they were openly doing it in 1982. Yeah, and really, we knew they were doing it and were just somehow chill about it. Yeah. Oh, I just had a thought now. Not now, now, but I wonder how often we've gone to our quote-unquote enemies just to solve crimes. Well, I wonder if Dave... I wonder if they've ever asked us to. Yeah, I don't know. Fascinating. That is a team thought. But moving on, predictably, distrust invaded the task force, such as, say, Russians in Afghanistan. Turf wars ensued, as the Tribune points out. The Chicago detectives shared that worry. Their department's relationship with the FBI had been rocky for decades, but it it was a particularly low point in September 1982. Three months earlier, 10 Chicago officers from the city's west side were convicted of taking bribes to protect heroin, heroin rings. The rest came as a result of an undercover FBI operation and the Marquette 10 as the disgraced officers came to be known, remain an enduring symbol of police corruption in Chicago. The city that works. The city that works. Said another way, just due to the Chicago detectives being butthurt, the feds exposed their corruption. They paused participation and sent proxies to the daily meetings. Detectives Ford and Gildia, and ultimately the Chicago PD, created a command center as well as a tip hotline at the Western and Belmont Cop Shop. Okay. Unlike the task force, they really started to focus on people who dealt with toxic substances. Hmm. Marty Sinclair an owner of a dive bar on Wells Street. And this is what the paper says, but later on, we'll, I'll point out something later on, but Marty Sinclair, according to this, owner of a dive bar on Wells Street, the same street as the Walgreens where Prince purchased her pills, dropped a dime on an erratic, recently divorced bar fly who bragged about his chemistry hobby. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, it's getting interesting. The nine... One one report said, quote, the subject was recently divorced and is despondent. Arnold supposedly picked up a quantity of cyanide, parentheses, two 16-ounce bottles, six months ago and said that he was working on a project. Yeah, Det- probably with Stephen Stonheim, I would guess. Oh, yes. I'm, oh, Detective Gildia told the Tribune. He tells us essentially that one of the semi-regulars that comes in there is an off guy. He said Arnold was sitting at the bar talking to people and he had white powder. And he goes, you can kill people and nobody would ever know. And stuff like that. Stuff like that. that Kill people talk. Yeah. (laughs) So... The cops pick Arnold up 
on October 11th. And they discovered loose links to the Tylenol motors. So two of the tainted bottles had been purchased at Jewel's in the suburbs, and Arnold worked as a dockhand at their Melrose Park location. At the Jewel? At the Jewel. And by the way, I said Jewel's because it was actually more than one Jewel that I was talking about. It's the only time someone's ever probably properly added an S to the grocery store name. The Jules Oscos. So he worked at as a dock hand at a Melrose Park Jewel. And then, stranger yet, Mary Lynn Reimer, her father worked there. And the two enjoyed lunch together from time to time. Arnold's ex-wife was hospitalized across the street from Frank's Fine Foods, which is where Reimer bought her pills. Reimer's not the one in Old Town. She's the one in the... In the suburbs, yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. And two tainted bottles were found in Chicago on on shelves, but we'll get to how that happened. They found more tainted bottles, and one was at the from the Walgreens within walking distance of Arnold's watering hole. They've been, go- they've been going through the bottles that were confiscated. Yes. Were recalled. recalled, yes. And they don't know really how many more there were because people were freaking the fuck out and throwing the bottles away, which is what I would have done. <laughs> he denied any involvement. Arnold did. But he did confess to having cyanide. So Detective Ford told the Tribune, we can see right away, looking at the guy. He wasn't wired too tight. He was a little wacky. We kind of schmoozed the guy. Only a criminal mastermind could do this. And this guy had to be a genius. We're puffing him up a little bit. Do you see now I wanted to do this one with you? <laughs> Thank you, Officer O'Malley from Back of the Yards. Jeez. This worked, and Arnold consented to a search of his home in McKinley Park. I also want to point out McKinley Park is, for anybody who doesn't know their Chicago neighborhoods, is nowhere near where he's a regular at a bar. And usually in Chicago, just for listeners who don't know Chicago, we have a lot of bars. So we tend to go to the bar. If you're a regular at a bar, you tend to be a regular at the bar that's closest to where you live. They worked and they are, he gives them permission to search his house. So I'm just going to list what they find in no particular order. Several unlicensed handguns. A rifle. Weird white powder. Vials. Beakers. Funnels. Test tubes. And a lab company catalog. Whoops. But wait. Additionally, various publications providing preparation for explosives, drugs, poisons, and a tranche of books, including the poor man's James Bond, offering, specifically, cyanide-making instructions, including a recommendation for testing such as putting it into an enemy's medicine cabinet. This is like a a dream raid for, like, Benson. (laughs) Right, it's like it's all. It's like yeah, but it's it's all circumstantial. But 
lest you think we're done with incriminating evidence, he had a one-way ticket to Thailand. He was planning (laughs) on leaving in a few days. The Tribune notes, and I'm just including this because the Tribune had to write this sentence, Arnold frequently traveled there to partake in the sex trade. The detectives learned. (laughs) (laughs) Yet, as we know from both OJ and Casey Anthony, circumstantial evidence does not guarantee you a guilty verdict. They required a confession. I, I'm going to usually read the quotes, but I'm going to send you a quote and have you read it. I'm just looking up McKinley Park here. Yeah. I didn't really know nearly 72. It's namesake McKinley William Park is a nearly 72 acre venue offering several Sports courts, a pool, a seasonal ice skating rink, and wildlife viewing along its lagoon. I didn't know. I didn't know either. It looks all right. I sent you your quote. Okay. You want me to read it? Yes. Ford told the Tribune, you wind them and you dine them. It's like you're going out on a date, except going to first base with them puts them in a penitentiary. Oh, my God. That's maybe the most Chicago thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Read that. And I'm like, John's going to have so much fun with that. You missed it because John was laughing so hard. So you wine them, you dine them. It's like you're going out on a date, except going to first base with them puts them in the penitentiary. It gets everything you need in there. It's like breaking, it's sex, and it's jail. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Back at the station, Ford and the the detectives organized. They were getting organized to get a confession out of it. But the top brass, they decide to basically cock block. The detectives have been doing the work and chase a high-profile confession and block them from getting into the interrogation room. Mm. And as a result... Arnold lawyered up and they arrested him for five misdemeanors weapons charges. That's a fuck up. Yeah. So two days later, the Tylenol task force started assisting the CPD investigation. They obtained a search warrant with Sinclair's tip and noted a supervisor at Jewel said Arnold was, quote, mad at people and wanted to throw acid at them or poison them. So Arnold just sounds a quality guy. Yeah. So he, meanwhile, someone leaks Arnold's name to the media. And after two days in jail, he is out on a $600 bond. Because it's misdemeanor weapon ownership charges. Yes, misdemeanor weapon owner owner charges. That is so Chicago, too. It's just, yeah, I know that my neighbor killed his wife. But what really pisses me off is he put he does dibs for my parking spot that's what it's yeah so he's out um and as you can imagine being a primary suspect in the highest profile murder of 1982 made things difficult for alcoholic fueled arnold and he fumed and he focused all of his ire on sinclair the bar owner 
And in April 1983, he purchased a gun. And in June, he was drinking at Lily's on Lincoln Avenue. And he left to go get some Mexican food, as one does. And he returned around closing to fetch his forgotten lighter. He spotted Sinclair, the subject of his rage, on Lincoln Avenue. And he confronted him inquiring, Marty, did you turn me in? At a range of five feet, he shot Marty. Except it wasn't Sinclair. What? Arnold shot a guy named John Stanisha, a man with a similar build and facial hair who also hung out in the area. Oh, no. Yes. They call that the eighth victim of the Tylenol murders. He sped off in his car, ditched the gun in the south branch of the Chicago River, and ended up in a hotel room in Indiana. The next morning, after consulting his attorney, he surrendered. And I feel like that is a good place to end it for the day. It's always a good place, always a good thing to end your day in a small hotel in Indiana. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is in the next part, just as a, we'll talk about what happens to Arnold. And the FBI has their own suspect, which is even more batshit crazy story. (laughs) Seriously? Oh my God. Yeah. All right. This is how Chicago the story is. We'll get into like Johnson and Johnson's response. Yeah, that part I've been waiting to hear because that's going to be good. Yeah, because the only part, I'm not going to read up on it, but the only part, I remember the actual murders. I do not remember any of this aftermath. But of course, as you said, the aftermath is so much more ridiculous. It, so there's a point, I'll just like, so Johnson & Johnson hires, like the person from the lab hires a lawyer that he went to college with to kind of, before he could get into Chicago to go see what's happening. And so there's these two guys working on it and all, and it turns out like they go to Jane Byrne when she pulled Tylenol just off the shelves because it also impacted people with Tylenol three. What's Tylenol three? Tylenol. That's like Tylenol coding prescription. And just one of the little details was the men knew Jane well, Byrne well, because they had gone to Notre Dame with her husband. Yeah, I was re- when I was reading this, I'm like, why, why do we not know this should be talked about like right up there with all the other crazy things that have happened in Chicago? Although I guess talking about Tylenol murders is a little. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a little bit of a bummer, but it's it is fascinating how it rolled out. Thank you for listening, everybody. If you liked this podcast today, this episode. Be sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a five-star review. Thank you. And we will see you next week with the wild ride that is the Tylenol murders.